Hey everyone, Trace here. The following episode on Copycat was actually recorded as part of Salem Horror Fest, which took place last month. That is October 2020 for anyone listening to this in the future. Because of COVID-19, this was a virtual broadcast as opposed to an in-person live appearance, but we still had a blast doing it. Unfortunately, we did have a tiny technical issue towards the end of the recording, so you'll notice a slight downgrade in audio quality for the last 25 minutes of the episode, but you'll still be able to hear and understand everything just fine. Also, since this was recorded as a special episode, we don't do our standard housekeeping at the end where we announce the film we're covering next week, so I'll go ahead and do that right now. Next week, Joe and I will be covering a film directed by previous guest Carter Smith. Listen to our episode on The People Under the Stairs if you haven't, because he's very insightful. Anyway, that film is 2008's The Ruins, the killer vine movie that did not get its due when it was released 12 years ago. So give that a watch over the weekend, and we'll see you next week. This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. It's a very special Salem Horror Fest edition, and we're talking about squirrel covers, and we're talking about pocket cheeseburgers, and we're talking about Sigourney fucking Weaver, and I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and I'm going to say welcome to Horror Queers for anyone who's never listened to us before, and we're talking um, red high-heeled shoes, slow motion dropping off a toilet. We're talking copycat, y'all. We should always have red high heel shoes dropping off of a toilet. Obviously. I always forget the slow-mo effect. Like, it's so focused on, like, this, like, really dramatic dropping of this fucking shoe. It's also, y'all, we're an R-rated podcast. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, and also we spoil things. So if you haven't seen Copycat in the 25 years since it's been out, uh, spoiler warning. We're going to ruin the end of this movie for you. We should have had a birthday cake. It is its 25th anniversary this month on October 27th. Bye! Uh, We're already fucking up. (laughs) Well, okay. So for anyone who's never listened to this before, we are the Horror Queers. Again, Trace Thurman, Joe Lipsit. Well, he's on this side of my screen over here. Maybe he's not in the recording. Who knows? Uh, It's working. (laughs) We are part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. And we basically look at various horror films through a queer lens. Uh, The films can have an explicit queer element, they can have camp factors, they can have just a queer following, or we may just want to talk about them. I don't know. Uh, we, We can make anything queer. But before I go too much further into this, I do want to mention that we have a very special guest on today's episode. So, ladies and gentlemen and everyone in between, they are the festival director of, well, this festival... Salem Horror Fest. Uh, so please welcome Kay Lynch to the podcast, everybody. Hello. Am I here? Yes, I'm here. <laughs> yes, you're here. <laughs> I just materialized. Welcome, Kay. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Finally, we did it. I'm so glad. Uh, I've been listening to you guys for like, what, since the beginning? It's been two years now? Almost two years. Almost yeah, two we're years. coming up. Yeah. We're coming up on the big two. The big number two. <laughs> well, how many episodes? Maybe that'll sound better. There we go. Yeah. Uh, so we'll be we'll be celebrating our hundredth an- our hundredth anniversary, our hundredth episode next month. Congratulations! That's amazing. Thank you so thank much, you. and thank you for having us on uh, again. Like, well, this is actually my first time meeting you, so this is really fun. And um, well, I guess everyone watching it's their first time meeting us. 
So. Happy October, y'all. Yes. Happy October and happy first time viewing of Copycat for UK. How was that experience? Yeah, I can't believe I missed this. It's like, ticks all the boxes. It's awesome. I love Sigourney and Holly Hunter and to see them both in the like cop procedural where they're the leads working together to solve a crime is really cool and really unique and just so mid 90s <laughs> it is it is and i think when it Very came nice. out it got really kind of unfairly compared to other prestige films that were coming out around the same time but it's really one that i think has kind of earned i don't want to say it's a cult following over the years but it's definitely acquired a following like for me like I had never heard of this movie before, and um, you know, back when I was a wee one, I used to stay with my grandparents once a month, uh, one week every summer. And my uncle, I hate this term, it's my gay uncle, but the gunkle, <laughs> he had this movie on VHS, and I remember when I was like going through it, because he always had this extensive movie collection, and I would go and I would pick, all through, pick through all of his shit, and I remember I grabbed Copycat, and he walked in on me like holding it, and he was like, ugh. That is Sigourney Weaver's best movie. I don't watch all that alien shit she does. <laughs> so that's, that's the alien shit. <laughs> that's how I got introduced to Copycat. <laughs> My sister and I used to watch this a lot. I think we must have also had a VHS copy, but it was one of those things where my parents didn't get too worried because it's a relatively bloodless film. Mm-hmm. So I think they thought that it was a safer option and they're like, oh, it's two strong female leads you know, not worrying about the fact that, oh, it's also evoking some of the worst serial murderers in human history. But, you know, that's fine. We don't have to worry about that. <laughs> I'm just imagining, like, your mom back then going like, oh, those two female leads, that that's okay. <laughs> I don't even know if my parents knew who Holly Hunter was. They probably would have been like, that chick from the piano. Raising Arizona, maybe? Maybe. I don't know. My parents are actually not big movie fans at all. They they have no idea where my sister and I get it from. I feel so bad I haven't upgraded to blue yet. I still have like the snap case of like... Oh, the snap case. With the reversible, oh. like one side's full screen, one side's widescreen. Ah! ah! There we <laughs> I've go. I've got the blue. I've got the blue. Okay, well, so see. I think I haven't <laughs> grabbed it yet because they haven't updated the bonus features yet. Like it's still There's like... There's nothing the fu- on it. Dude, I don't know if your Blu-ray has this, but the DVD special features, there's like a casting... No, it's just like, um, oh, it's casting crew, and it's like a slideshow of text of, like, behind-the-scenes information on the film. Oh, no. <laughs> what? That's more than I got. I just got the audio commentary with the director and, ooh, theatrical trailer. Previews. Oh. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, okay, you and I both listened to the commentary with director John Amiel today, and that is actually a d- commentary made in 1998... For the DVD, for this one, this DVD yeah. that I have, so okay, it's a bit dated. I mean, it's a little annoying when these films celebrate big milestones, like twenty-five years for this movie. And let's be honest, this is really good roles for both of these lead actresses. And it's frustrating that nobody recognizes. Hey, you know, I recognize that the film didn't do a huge box office back in the day, but it's got a very big cult following. We could probably make some money off of reissuing a. Special features DVD with a little bit more extras on it. Well, I actually no because Kay, you said you'd missed it. Had you heard of it before we asked you to come on this episode before? Not really. I vaguely remembered the cover art, um, but I it was not really that prominent in sort of my recollection of that time. Watching it now, I'm actually surprised. And since I've been talking about it lately, 
a ton of people have been like, oh my god, I love that movie. Uh, but I haven't really heard people talk about it. No, and, and I'm not trying to single you out and be like, you're, you know, you're a bad queer. But it, <laughs> I, I think that I think that's going towards to, to be like, I, I don't think this movie's talked about enough. And I'm hoping that enough people watch this that maybe haven't heard of the movie or haven't seen it to where they will want to seek it out. Or at least give it a rewatch, because um, this is a movie that I can probably, like, I can rewatch this any day of the week. It's one of those, like, movies for me where I'm like, this is just really fun. It's a really fun horror light movie i don't know but yeah the chemistry between the two leads really sells it yeah it doesn't feel like a two-hour film either like when i put it on to rewatch it before this podcast you know you hit play and you just see oh two hours like what are they possibly filling and i know some people are going to quibble the stuff with will Patton in the in the precinct with the chinatown crew and that kind of stuff maybe we don't need to have it but at the end of the day i actually think that the interior life of holly hunter's character is important particularly if we want to apply a queer lesbian reading to this because she basically needs to kick these men to the curb and then go and spend a lot of time at sigourney weaver's place yes uh, i mean again there's she's not ex- the only explicitly queer character in this film is sigourney weaver's roommate andy played by john rothman but yeah i mean i think you get real big lesbian energy off of the scenes between weaver and hunter in this and there's obviously a very friendly chemistry between them, but you can kind of like, there's um there's sparks there, if I may say so. Yeah, I think it's an opposites attract. I've actually read reviews online where people say, the two women don't seem to like each other all that much. And I'm like, that's called sexual tension. <laughs> <laughs> also, like, they're trying to solve a horrific crime. I don't know that dating is really on top of mind. Although they're also like... Sh- it seems like a big group of swingers because Holly Hunter has had a previous relationship with Bill Patton. Apparently the current relationship with Ruben. Yeah. And then, yeah, flirting with Sir Gorney. And Sir Gorney, knowing that Holly and Ruben are together, flirts with him too and is like, hey, tell your guy that, like, thanks for last night. And I'm like, whoa, he's very... <laughs> These people are TDF. But it's interesting, though, because in the original draft of the screenplay, and there were several drafts that they to, to get to where the film is today, the Holly Hunter character of MJ was a male character, and they were going to have a romantic relationship with the Sargonia Weaver character. And so as they were developing it, they were like, we don't really need a romance in this movie where, as Kate rightfully pointed out, these they're trying to solve a series of gruesome murders. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. And yet the chemistry is there, nonetheless. Well, and I mean, I'll just fucking throw it out right there. I really do think this movie owes a huge debt to Silence of the Lambs, both in the female leads and also its general structure. It's not completely the same, but again, when this movie came out, it was compared to Silence of the Lambs a lot, despite coming out four years later. And you can see those parallels, but I think this movie still does a really good job of distinguishing itself from that. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the 90s, they're basically rife with these kinds of, I don't want to say low stakes, but like they're pretty straightforward crime procedurals. And this makes sense if you think about it, right? Like it's a very easy bread and butter kind of genre or subgenre rather to put together. So you just have to have a bit of good chemistry with your lead detectives. And then you've got some gruesome murders. But like, we had this in Silence of the Lambs, and then we got a bunch of derivative knockoffs and other, you know, crime adjacent kind of movies. So it feels like if Silence of the Lambs hadn't made such a cultural impact and won fucking Oscars and cemented the two lead actors in that film, 
as like these main big deals in Hollywood. I don't know that we would be referencing it all the time when every film that kind of uses the same tropes comes out. Like it just, it smacks of lazy journalism to me and I don't really like it. It also uh, feels very much like a Law and Order episode, which is only like five years after the show took off. I think maybe that's why. I mean, so I rewatched obviously this movie and I did rewatch Sounds of the Lambs last night as well, just so I could like kind of get a feel for it. This does feel more procedural. It feels, and I think the, the the idea of the copycat doing different killers, it feels very episodic. Usually that would be a complaint for me, that it doesn't feel like there's really a hole here. But I think that Amiel and screenwriters and Biderman and David Madsen, they do a really good job of still making it feel like a, like a, a fleshed out feature film that just kind of has episodic, like the episodic elements aren't the focus here, even though they are central to the plot. Yeah, I mean, just in case people haven't seen the film, should we mention what the distinguishing like police procedural elements are? That'd be helpful. Sure. What are they, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in this case, we've got two different killers. So we've got the one that Sigourney Weaver is afraid of at the beginning. So it's the person who kind of sets the stage and introduces the crime. And then we've also got a main serial killer that they're hunting. But there's also regular things like we've got the serial killer leaving phone calls. We've got notes at the crime scene. We've got uh, elements where they they stand around. They talk about the various evidence of, you know, on the bodies. They're looking at photos. They're on the Internet. Internet. 1995 Internet. Yes. We will have things to say about the size of an AVI file <laughs> later on. But uh, it, it's very much like, have you seen a crime thriller before? Good. Here's all the things that you're going to recognize. And they're here and present. Accounted for and copycat. Mm -hmm. And all the interpersonal relationships between the, the cops. Very, you know, you can tell they've got a, a life and a history beyond the movie. And that's the thing for me, you know, that's something that shouldn't work for me. That's something that I, I'm like, oh, like I'm watching these two women, like these two strong, powerful women, like duke it out and try to find a killer. But I've also got to watch this like cop drama. That sounds boring, but it works because I, it's a combination of the writing and the chemistry. Like even fucking Patton's character, who should be like a non-entity completely. It, mm -hmm. uh, you feel bad for him by the end of the movie. Yeah, and I think it's a testament to the actors and they're really selling it but it's strange that we're actually not getting a ton of some of these characters and yet they still do pop like you still actually care about Patton you care about whether or not he gets his closure with Holly Hunter's character like I I would dare to say you even care about fucking Andy when he gets murdered at the gay bar even though you've really had three scenes with him in the entire film like it, it's a testament to this film that all of these characters are working in supporting roles. He, Andy's kind of like the only like normal drama-free character in the film. He's kind of like, I, I don't know. He's, he's literally just, he's really... like, bye, I'm just going out to the bar. Yeah. <laughs> like... Oh, don't worry. She, she faints all the time. She'll be good in like 30 minutes. <laughs> I, I, and I think we'll have a lot to talk about Andy when we get to, I mean, really his death kind of, because if there, there's a lot to discuss about this, the one gay character in the film that we know of. Um, who does kind of get the short shrift in terms of an arc. But again, like, it still works for me because I still like this character. We get to see enough of Andy to where it pays off for me. But mm -hmm. I'll hold off on that. 
So yeah, let's just kind of go into this why this film wasn't that successful. So Copycat is released on October 27th, 1995 by Warner Brothers Pictures. We got a runtime of 123 minutes, which, by the way, is five minutes longer than Silence of the Lambs. Uh, we're looking at a budget of $20 million. Now, we've kind of hinted at it, but yeah, this film, it, it didn't... It wasn't a bomb. Um, it ended up grossing $32 million domestically, but it opened at the number four slot in the box office uh, with about $5 million. Now, this is behind Get Shorty in its second week, and then also um, Victor Salva's Powder in its first week, and Wes Craven's Vampire in Brooklyn also in its first week. So this movie was, like, out of all the new releases in this weekend, was the worst one, which is... Kind of surprising considering it's Halloween weekend 1995, but I digress. But we're also 1995, right? Which is firmly in the horror fucking sucks and we hate it. Yes, but the real issue here is this. So while this film was compared to Silence of the Lambs a lot, it also had the misfortune of being released about a month after Seven. David Fincher 7. And that went on to gross about $100 million domestically, but it's kind of a similar concept. I mean, obviously... Seven's a bit more stylized, you know, it's Fincher. But that is two male detectives looking for a serial killer. And now you have this other film, which is admittedly a bit lighter in terms of tone, um, which is two female detectives hunting for a serial killer. And it does a third of the business. And I think the word of mouth from Seven was just too much. And it just kind of overshadowed this release. You know, people didn't want to go see an Or honestly, maybe Seven depressed everyone so much. And they were like, well, I don't want to go see another one of those movies. Oh, God, there's two women. That means we could end up with two ladies' heads in boxes. <laughs> because women being murdered is funny. Yeah. As evidenced by Copycat, where mostly women die. But we don't really see... Well, I was going to say we don't yeah. see them die, but also in Seven, we don't really see people die either. But in Seven, Silence of the Lambs, other films, it's really a... There are films about violence against women, but in Copycat, it's a movie about women dealing with the violence against women. So I think it is one of the big things that sets it apart. I, I, I agree. And I mean, like, you know, you... <sighs> Like, in Silence of the Lambs, you have Clarice doing her own thing, but she's really working on her own or with Scott Glenn's Jack Crawford, so she always has that kind of male father figure there. And she's also a trainee, whereas you here you have two seasoned vets. Now, granted, you have Weaver's character, who is not at the top of her game, we'll say, but I, yeah, I just think it allows for so much more... And this isn't to say that I think this is a better film than Silence of the Lambs, but, you know, personal taste. Uh, but there's just something there that you're not getting in that film, or Seven, for that matter. Um, honestly, I feel like people that, if they had seen Seven, they can go see this and be like, oh good, a happy movie. Yeah, I mean, this to me actually feels a little fresher than Seven, which is, like, maybe I'll get dragged over the coals for that, but I think Seven is telling a more familiar story in a really visually innovative way, and it, like, it's doing it really, really well. It's not to say that one is better than the other, mm -hmm. but I think it, we're still in a time frame, like, in the mid-90s, we're not often seeing two females leading a film and we're right. certainly not seeing it in this subgenre right like it, you're maybe lucky if you get one female lead and she's usually the partner right like she's the one who's gonna fuck up and the guy's gonna have to save her because she gets kidnapped by some guy at the end which does happen here but it's like it even inverts that by having the mentor figure be the one who gets kidnapped well i think having a female co-writer and i I think that she's probably the main writer because the other co-writer, David Madsen, hasn't really done much of note since this, um, other than like a TV movie in 97. But Ann Biderman, like, I think having a female write this is probably going to be your key here. 
And she also clearly has knowledge in like procedurals because she also was a co-writer on Primal Fear with Richard Gere and Edward Norton. And then went on to go create the TV show Ray Donovan. Anyway, so this movie, again, not a hit, not a flop, blah, blah, blah. But again, as we mentioned, it's kind of developed this following. And I do think that a a good chunk of this following is from the queer community. And I don't know why. I I mean, I I know why, because you've got these two strong female characters, but it doesn't, like, this movie doesn't scream queer to me. I don't know, does it to y'all? I didn't think it was, I mean, I think at the time, the fact that Andy's role, as small as it is, was still bigger than what we would get at the time. Uh, He got Mm, a lot of screen time. Um, all things considered, he had a name. He had his own kind of thing going on. <laughs> he had a name. <laughs> yeah, no, like he—he he we was clearly for the stars at this point. <laughs> yeah, no, he was clearly an important person in Sigourney's, uh life, um, and uh, and I think he's. Just, I think it's also a testament to the performance. I think he brings a yeah. lot to it. Um, but uh, and then you know they show him in a gay club. You know, living living his life. Sadly, that was the end of it. Um, but <laughs> living the end of his life. <laughs> yeah, all the way to the end. But I mean, still in the mid nineties, we did not get many gay club scenes. Never mind a, a character willing to pretend to be gay <laughs> for the sake of their plot. Say what you will about Peter Foley, but that is a serial killer willing to go to the gay bar to get victims. <laughs> uh, was he like? Did they already establish? Like, were they already flirting and then he picked up a drink and spiked it? Or did he, like, spike it first and then it was like, hey, here's a drink for you, drink it. Because I was trying to figure out, like, did they already establish a connection before he got the drink? Well, he, he's on a date. Like, or he's going to the bar with... Pres- no? I thought it was a romantic think- interest. No, I think those were friends, like, going out for a, a night out. So Andy and his friend leave Sigourney Weaver's place, and then I think they go to the bar, they start chatting up this young guy who's taking an interest in them, because they are a little bit older, and I think he goes, he's like, you know what, I'm going to get the next round. He goes, he makes the telephone call, he roofies the drink, he comes back. Mm-hmm. That's how I've always read it. Yeah, I mean, but he's such a small part, I mean, such a small part of the film. I, do, I really do think it's it's the combo, it's the one-two punch of Hunter and Weaver that, like, screams gay to me in this well i could watch them do anything and it doesn't hurt that their performances are fucking great in this movie that they have really good chemistry with one another so it's not just like oh queer diva icons in this movie together you're like okay yeah oh like this does happen although i will say i adore sigourney and i do love watching her in this movie but i don't think she's necessary i think she's great i don't know that she's well cast well, I, I th- okay, wait, let's dive into that a little bit. <laughs> she's playing against type, though, because she is normally playing, like, badass women. I mean, you know, this is, like, right after Aliens and after she plays, oh my god, is it Diane Foss? Fossey? Diane Fossey in uh, Gorillas of the Mist? Like, she's known for playing these really strong, powerful female characters, and she is now not. I mean, she is, but she's not. So wh- where are you getting that from? I don't know, it was just hard to, be, maybe it's just because of that typecast, it was hard for me to imagine her as being so vulnerable. So yeah. her, her moments of like, oh my gosh, I'm scared to get the newspaper. I don't know, I think she did the best you could with that, but I'm so used to Sigourney just being able to take on Xenomorphs. I'm, and I'm just, I'm picturing you writing this review like, I just didn't buy that she couldn't get that newspaper. <laughs> like what was there a xenomorph on the other side 
and I understand like she's she's dealing with trauma and and all this, but it was just for Sigourney in particular, um, and that's probably a big reason of what brought her to the drew her to this role was because it was against type. But I, I just found it a little difficult to imagine her like struggling in that way because of Sigourney, the superstar, the actor. I think right. a big part of it though too is a lot of the agoraphobic scenes. The, I mean, you have Sigourney acting, but you also have the camera and Amiel doing a lot of work to get that yeah. across. So it's almost like the portrayal of agoraphobia is like fifty fifty. It's like fifty her performance and fifty what Am- Amiel's doing with the camera. So that also may be kind of what you're taking from it too. Yeah, there's there's almost like a sense of distrust that you can't just have Sigourney Weaver acting her fucking ass off trying to get this newspaper it's like okay well we really gotta sell what this experience is like for her because people may not know what agoraphobia is so that's really move that camera you're like okay like yeah it was a bit melodramatic (laughs) i mean this movie is melodrama (laughs) that's true that is true but I think that, I think though, maybe we can discuss it. I mean, once we get into the plot in a second, like we can do that. But I think, you know, it's not a campy movie, but I think there are elements of camp in this that, yeah. that also kind of make it more queer, um, unintentionally yeah. so, probably. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I remember the first time I saw this, I definitely was like, what is up with Harry Connick Jr.'s performance yeah. in this movie? And he fought for that role. He fought. He, he The director was like, no, no. And he was like, no, no, I can do this. I can do it. <laughs> he was like, I will dye my hair red and I will act like a yeehaw local yeah. for you for this role. <laughs> I've got a weird cousin who uses the term squirrel covers. Oh my God. Squirrel covers. <laughs> it sounds like he based, he based like a lot of his improvisations on... Was it his cousin or someone related said to him? Was, and it's like, who yeah. is this person? Also, are they in prison? Because... Right. <laughs> right. Right. What is going on here? <laughs> are they a sexual predator? Should we be worried? Yeah. Um, okay. Well, here. I'll go through some just reception really quick, and then we'll just dive right into this plot. So, um, yeah. The reception's mostly good at the time. It's got a 78% of Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 6.66 oh, out of 10. Um, and hmm. then we're looking at a letterbox score of 6.2 out of 10. That's really good. I mean, for, I, I, again, when you put it up against Silence of the Lambs and I guess, even, yeah, even seven, it's maybe not as good. It's like, you know, thir- it's come in in bronze really. Um, but not for us. I think the big I difference mean, I is think... style. Uh, the, 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 those films are extremely, you know, like saturated with style. And I don't, I don't know. Uh, Copycat feels more like a, a TV drama than um, sort of an yeah. exercise in, of cinema. Which, which was probably also an element of why it wasn't taken as seriously. But Weaver has said that this is the one role of hers that she's upset like the movie didn't do better because she was really proud of her work in this movie. I mean, despite her unbelievable agoraphobic acting. <laughs> Okay, he's never gonna let you down. I know. Hey, I, I think it, it is a compliment to her. It, it is absolutely. But yes, okay, Joe, take us away. All right, so we open on Doctor Helen Hudson, played by Sigourney Weaver, and she is delivering a lecture to a packed lecture hall. And after a very fun exercise that highlights how bland white serial killing men are, wait, let's let's say. It's basically all white men between the ages of 20 and 35. That's it. <laughs> that, that, that's your profile, everyone. 
Well, it's basically it's a process of elimination, right? Like she's she's basically weeding out anybody who's too young, too old or too colored. And it's like, look, it's all of your incels and all of your turfs and all of the people who deliver hate on the Internet only back in 1995. So you had to make them stand up physically in a classroom. Oh, but they clean up graffiti. So they're like really good people. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they're they're delivering public service before they go in and shoot people multiple times and then are allowed to walk. Oh, okay. Sorry. No, we're not a political podcast, right? <laughs> Trace well, is like, still... I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> it literally could be, a, it could be a lot of people. <laughs> we're just talking about one of many, many shootings that have happened because of uh, white men, like the people who stand up in this movie. Oh, yeah, that. Right? And they also don't necessarily, you know, they don't, you're not like, oh, hi, I'm clearly a serial killer. They can be, you know, your your boy next door, your, you know, your volunteer at the food pantry. It could be anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, That's actually mm-hmm. something I like. Well, we'll get to, uh, okay, well, something I like about the killer in this movie is that he's just like an everyman. You, but he, yeah. he also his characterization isn't big like this isn't a Hannibal Lecter we're talking about it's not John Doe it's just a regular guy who is honestly kind of sad and pathetic like that's kind of my favorite thing about it oh absolutely I actually one of the things that I love about the Peter Foley character is the fact that he is almost like an unformed individual like he can't even define himself enough to have a serial killer profile he has to copy other people like that's how boring he is that's that's the thing like being a copycat's kind of like like bottom of the barrel like serial killer right yeah. like, like other serial killers if there was like a, a, a social media of serial killers like they would be the losers yeah yeah well it's also <laughs> it's also to provide a stark contrast from daryl too because he's clearly like you know you would meet daryl and be like oh where are the bodies buried <laughs> <laughs> so wait wait so what you're saying is the the daryl lee cullum characters of robert danny jr he's like the silence of the lambs of the serial killers, and then Peter Foley is like the copycat of the copycat killers. Oh my god, I don't even know if I like that comparison. Go away. <laughs> so mean. Okay, yeah, so she does this one thing, and everybody's like, oh, but I would date that guy. You're so good, Helen Hudson. Well, in the commentary, John talks about, the director talks about how the way it's set up, you've got the stage, the video, the live feed of her giving the presentation for the audience, um, and then, of course, the the camera of the film you have these different sort of squares and modes of viewing other people that john says was intended to sort of like show how the serial killer sort of views reality in this sort of distorted way well it's also voyeuristic too it kind of calls to mind like you the audience are here watching this horror thriller movie for violence and so it's kind of like this the multi-screen thing we've been saying that a lot lately i feel like too but it always calls to mind funny games for me i mean i like it because it also anticipates the way that they view crime scenes as like photographs or like on the computer screen so it's almost cueing you to like look closer at the media because that's actually where we're also going to see clues that will lead us to peter at the end of the day Anyway, so so speaking of Peter Foley, he is actually in this crowd. So mm-hmm. there's a bunch of people who watch this movie and never realize it because, of course, you don't know to look for him. But if you watch it a second time, you'll see he is one of the men who stands up. So the so Helen has actually done her work. She has identified that there is a serial killer in this crowd, and he does fit the M.O. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, so after she delivers her lecture, she's like, sweet, I'm just going to use the ladies. So she goes in, her security detail checks it out, everything looks fine except for a fake pair of ladies' legs, and lo and behold, Daryl Lee is actually waiting for her. He has masterminded this entire scheme. <laughs> a fake pair of ladies' legs. It's, a- it's actually Harry Connick Jr.'s legs, but they do look quite effeminate, I must say. Okay, let's talk about this scene, y'all, because how, if you're a killer... This is really a lot <laughs> to like go through. It's very extra. <laughs> I mean, I think if nothing else, this this speaks to the ridiculousness that people will go to become famous, right? Like he has this grand operatic vision that he wants to execute so that he becomes famous. And ultimately it works because he does end up publishing a fucking book. Wait, but that's like a, a dream sequence, though, initially, right? No, no, Where no, she no, finds no. The book? No. No, oh, wait, that's, that's just the beginning and the end is the end? Like, it's just like the movie. Oh, yeah. Dream yeah. sequence. And I was like, this is an, <laughs> oh, was an awfully specific dream. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so she does hallucinate Daryl in the audience, but that's a yep. hallucination. But her getting attacked in the opening scene is 100%. Like, that's why she becomes an agoraphobic. No, but then the end of the movie is the... is. Um, He's copycatting him. Duh, okay, there we go. Because I'm like, who's okay? How do you copy that? <laughs> That's very specific. Well, no, it's like he's going from like the Hillside Stranglers to the Boston Strangler to Son of Sam, and then like, oh, also Daryl Lee Cullum. <laughs> yeah, that the magnum opus. Yeah, well, I think, but if you take the line that Helen delivers about midway through the film, where she says she's like the poster woman, she's the fucking muse for all these people, it does make sense that you would try to build up to. The P.S. de résistance, where you get to, like, enact revenge on this bitch who put away yeah. the guy who's actually mentoring you from prison. For sure. Um, but yeah, it's just such a complex way. I mean, again, A, gotta bank on no one else being in that goddamn bathroom. B, the whole strangling, like, like, a, a, like a wire over this pipe that's conveniently located over the... St- I mean, again, I'm not gonna get into, like... You don't need logistics. I'm yeah. not gonna get into, yeah, whatever. But it works. It's really scary. And it's also, it's, it's kind of one of those scenes where it's like, I... I've never seen a murder, attempted murder scene like this before. And it's, I really like it. Yeah, I think it's actually a great way to open the movie because you're not expecting her to go from a lecture hall to an attempted murder, like in the space of two minutes. It's Mm -hmm. just not how you think the movie will open. The last thing she says, she's signing her book and she's like, don't stand next to any white fans. (laughs) That sounds like ADR that was added in later, but I love it. (laughs) Yeah, And that it's like, yeah, because, you know, because anything that's sketchy is clearly obvious. I'm going to go into the ladies room now. Whoa. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The white rape van. And then we get, I kind of love the title card for this, though, where it's the cop running down the hall. And then it's like the stamp, but then it copy guy, copy guy, copy guy, copy guy, copy guy, copy guy, copy guy. So good. Because that's what this movie's all about. Let's just do it 18 different ways the same. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we pick up 13 months later, and we zero in on Helen as she wakes up from a bad dream, but she's also still having a panic attack inside her palatial San Francisco apartment. This apartment is so oh, the vapors. <laughs> I will say, the one thing I really appreciate, I mean, there's lots of things I appreciate this movie, but I do love the fact that when Holly Hunter and Dermot Mulroney come in and they talk about the size of this apartment and they talk about how much how much it must cost because typically in movies people are just like, oh, what, this old shack? I've just got a couple of twigs of furniture and you're like, 
it's the size of a city block. Like, what are we doing here? So, and the entire wall is are like blinds. Like the entire wall just kind of like transforms into a window. I mean, and yep. I, it's kind of one of those like, oh, so in friends. Why did? How does this Monica chef like have this giant New York apartment? Do criminal? I mean, I guess maybe she has book sales, but like. I don't know, like, do criminal psychologists make money to make... Because San Francisco, A, is fucking expensive. But, like, Very for expensive. that... For She's this. on the water, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the answer is, I I think it's embedded in another line that she says later on, where she's like, this is the stock lecture I gave all around the country. Mm-hmm. So you can make a lot of money giving talks. Like, a lot of famous people will retire and then just give talks and live off of that. Speaking of, though, like, real things like that, it, it's later when they come in and, like, and Holly Hunter's like, well, we can't, pay to fi- to, we can't afford to pay your usual fee. And I was like, oh, good. So she's not just volunteering for the, for the San Francisco Police Department. <laughs> yeah. Although I do also like that she's like, well, I'm not on duty because I'm not working for you. <laughs> like, <laughs> fuck you, bitch. She's a self-made woman. She, she really is. is. Yeah. But now she's unmade. Well, yeah. So she she gets a little bit of help from her agoraphobic chat room at a workstation that I'm not going to lie. My 2020 ass was very jealous of. She's got a good setup. She's also rude as fuck to this bitch. Like, she's like, hey, girl, how long you been in there? Six months. Okay, I'm 13 months. Bye. And like leaves. (laughs) Like, okay. Oh, I I got you beat. (laughs) Like, oh, I didn't realize we were in the agoraphobia Olympics and you were trying to come in number one. (laughs) Oh, that's what I was going to comment earlier, Kay, though, is that what I do like about Weaver's performance here is that this character is kind of unlikable. Like, she's a very frustrating, not particularly nice. Yeah, she's very prickly. And I think that you need someone like Weaver there to make it, like, to smooth out the edges of it. Um, But that could work the opposite way to where it, like, doesn't come across as, as well as it should for some people. So, hmm. well, she's she's like super jaded that which, you know, is also a nice contrast to Holly, who's like pretty positive and like charming and yeah. funny and um, and religious, too. I think it's a big difference. I think Sigourney has lost faith just in general. Mm-hmm. And Holly Hunter is still trying to see the good in people and, and humanity. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think like she has that line later that's like, oh, I'm going to pray. And I always thought it was a throwaway line, but that kind of makes sense, though. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on how you read Holly Hunter's character. Like, we don't really get to know anything about her backstory except for her relationship with men, because it's 1995, and that's the most important thing. But I I think you could very easily give her that rich emotional backstory a la Clary Starling, where, like, you know, she's Holly Hunter, so she's got that little twang in the voice. Like, she probably came from the Midwest, she came to the big city, she did well, but she still retains that belief that there's good in people, and so on. Yeah. And yet she's so small, like, she's short, she's, you know, just a, a, a small stature, but she commands so much power and yeah. um, control but- of, of of all the men and, and the situation. She's constantly putting people in check. Um, which I think is really interesting. That's where you get your Clary Star. That's where someone's like, okay, we need to cast someone like Jodie Foster in this role. But so right, right from her introduction though, which is where we're going next is the, it's the training scene with Ruben. And then we go from that to when they find the body and the way you see her interact, like you can tell that she's been like the men respect her, but you can tell that she's had to earn that respect doubly so because she's a woman. Yeah, and even if they do respect her, they're they're still willing 
to like gently kind of push her buttons mm-hmm. whenever they get the opportunity. Like she's obviously got a a bit of a cantankerous relationship with her boss, Lieutenant Quinn, who is played by J.E. Freeman. Openly gay actor. Oh, yeah. There uh, you go. Yeah, he actually, actually, no. So he was diagnosed with um, HIV in like the early 80s and continued working and had like a long life. He didn't die until like the late 2000s. But yeah, openly gay actor, just um, in this movie. Also, apparently he was known mostly for playing uh, villains. So he's also playing against type here. Yeah, I mean, I think you get the sense that he's a foil for Hunter's character. So I, again, like I almost wish we could have gotten a little bit more because he clearly respects her, but he also isn't willing to just let her go off and do things, which is like such a cop movie trope, right? Like if you look at Dirty Harry, it's here's my badge. I'm going to throw it all away and go and do this myself. And (laughs) I like that we don't go there. Kay, have you seen Dirty Harry? (laughs) Yeah. Oh God! I was like, I've never, I've, I have no, I've never seen Dirty. I, I'm so, I'm, I'm honored that you think that I've seen Dirty Harry, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that was. I mean, I'm sure it's happened in a lot of like police TV shows before, in some way or another. Mm-hmm. But I think Dirty Harry, that moment became a trope. I think that a lot of movies yeah. kind of copied that formula from that point on. And Holly Hunter does try to turn in her badge, and I think, mm-hmm. like you said, the her boss is kind of a foil for her. But in that moment, he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> We just lost three cops. You think I'm going to let you go? No, go get drunk and then come back tomorrow. You're still on the clock. Yeah. Like, again, it's just these really interesting little moments in these characters that arguably didn't have to be there. Like, they could have just made this guy an asshole boss and he gets in her way and she knows better, but he doesn't trust her. But mm-hmm. the movie doesn't do that. It wants to make all of these supporting characters more interesting. And and they are. And they are. Like, I, I would even say... I, again, I could have done with a little bit more of her, but to get into that crime scene, they had to walk past this female reporter that they called the mouth. The mouth! <laughs> <laughs> Who's played by Shannon O'Hurley. And, like, she only shows up in a couple of scenes. Often she's delivering the news reports that are kind of cueing Sigourney Weaver in on how the investigation's going. But I did love that, like, she's enough of a character that they gave her a kind of code name. Yeah. Oh, let's get by the mouth first. It does reek of deleted scenes, um, and there are others that we'll get to in a bit, but, like, they're not available anywhere, as far as I can tell. Okay, so yeah, so basically we've established our two lead females. So we've got prickly Zagorny Weaver, who can't leave her house, and then we've got super competent Jodie Foster. Oh! Oh my god. Oh wow. no! Wow! Oh, you could have you could have played that as like a dig. I thought that was really yeah. Like I meant to do. Saucy. I actually have it in my notes earlier. I'm like, we're introduced to Clary Starling. Er. All you lazy journalists from 1995. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! Okay, so Holly Hunter. And she's got Ruben, which is like her male underling who I kind of love. Like she's got this banter with him played by Dermot Mulroney. He's great. He doesn't get anything to do in this role, but he's still great. Wait, I'm in the mind. I don't love Dermot Mulroney. I think he's always kind of like giving this wooden performance very much. And this is like the liveliest I've ever seen him be. It's like, I just, he's so charming in this movie. I don't know. I just, and watching him play off of Hunter and even like go tete-a-tete with fucking Will Patton. It's nice to see this. And again, this is a character that also could have been just like, I mean, killed off earlier than when he is in the film, but they keep him around. And he's honestly like, it doesn't feel like padding to me. No, I mean, hmm. 
I generally like Dermot Mulroney. I don't, I can't even say why I'm trying to think of another role that I really enjoy him in, but I feel like whenever he shows up, I'm like, oh yeah, you, okay. But the chemistry between these two when they're at the gun range Mm -hmm. is so good. But then, yeah, you immediately get the scene where they're working the crime scene and she just says, oh, is that the landlady? And she just dismisses him. She's like, okay, you go off and there, do this. Like, she just takes control, but she's also completely in charge. Like, none of the men get to do anything, even though she knows all of their names. Yeah. Which also impressed me. Why? She also sends him to get her dinner. <laughs> she's like, go get my food. Mm-hmm. What, pocket cheeseburger? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, um, yeah. So, basically, this scene exists so that we can see her work the scene, but also so that we can learn that Peter Foley, the guy that we don't know exists yet, is a copycat killer in the way that he's also, like, he's killing a bunch of people, and they're like, hmm, there's a pattern, but it's not quite working. So we're supposed to be cued up that there's some kind of mystery. It also sets up a big character element of Holly, too, because the, you know, the man shoots the kill. It's like, as soon as you see someone just like, oh, put eight bullets into the cardboard, and she's like, no, you shoot in the shoulder. And it which oh, you has mean a Chekhov's shoulder? Later. Yeah. No, I'm sorry, <laughs> yeah. y'all. Chekhov's brachial nerve. But again, th- that's good filmmaking where it's like, oh, because th- again, you have these moments in films where it's like, oh, they're like, it's like the camera's like, let's close in on this really quick just so the audience doesn't forget. And this is like a smooth moment of this where it's like, I, you don't think to th- like that's going to come back later. So it's good. I also like that it doesn't come back just once. Like it comes back twice. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's it really is like they're laying a lot of groundwork here. Which I don't, I don't necessarily like the arc of that point too, because it it establishes that one of the themes of the film is whether or not a cop has the right to take life, even if they're a murderer, and yeah. it establishes that Holly Hunter is like, no, we sh- you know we don't shoot the kill, but ultimately mm-hmm. in the end, it feels like the lesson she learned is like, no, sometimes you gotta kill a bitch, a hundred percent, and this does not like. Obviously, you can't foretell what's going to happen in the future, but in 2020, this is like a garbage thing that does not sit well. It's like, well, oh, cops needing to learn how to shoot to kill? You're like, ah, <laughs> or well, not. And, and that's the thing, yeah, because the way that she ends this movie is with a completely different idea of how cops should be because of this tragedy she suffered. And it's, yeah, it, God, it's really timely. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> considering how everything that's going on. Well, at least the awareness of it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but like if if no other thing, I think one of the things that recent events have illustrated is the way that we idolize police officers and have in media for just decades. Right? Like, it's not unsurprising that we've got this woman as our lead protagonist, and she's like out there working the case because that's what cops do, right? But hopefully what we're going to see moving forward is different types of stories where cops are not heroes and they're maybe not even central characters. But like in 1995, this was 100% like, oh, we want to make bank. Let's make a cop movie. Yeah. So we hop back to Helen so that we can get the aforementioned newspaper scene, which is basically just, hey, do you know what agoraphobia is? Here's it illustrated in a non-violent, non-scary movie. But I do like that it also has the sticker at the end where she like opens it up and it's details in the case and she's like, oh, idiots. Idiots. (laughs) 
Because she's still prickly. She hasn't been redeemed yet. <laughs> it's the same scene in Invisible Man. Like, the same concept. I mean, I wonder, there's got to be other movies that do the same thing of, like, let's show how broken this person is by how difficult it is to get the newspaper. I'm always low to be like, oh, yeah, this movie from the 90s totally inspired these other movies. Because I'm sure there's something from the 80s or 70s or whatever that has inspired that as well. But oh, sure. I'm oh, just yeah. going to say it. But, Copycat did it. But Lee, Lee Winnell did explicitly say that he was inspired by a lot of, like, 90s thrillers. So it could be a direct There reference. you go. There we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So at this point, we hop to the police precinct for the first time. And we're introduced to... MJ's ex, that's the Holly Hunter character, but uh, yeah, so we get to meet Nicoletti, or Nico, as he is called throughout the film, and that is Will Patton, and we also, I don't know if you two caught this, I had never caught it until this rewatch, but Peter Foley is actually at the precinct as well. Yeah, he is. It's like a blink and you miss it. Well, and I, because, I mean, we found out later he worked at a sperm bank, so I wonder if he was like... I don't know, dropping off evidence samples of sperm? I, I don't know. Well, they say that because there's Will Patton is interviewing that one guy who's yeah. like, oh, I stabbed her like eight times, whatever. And he's like, get the fuck out of here. Because, and they say that there's always uh, serial killers tend to, because they're so, um, the egos are so big and they just kind of get off on being able to get away with things in, in plain sight. They kind of, it's, it's sort of like a misdirect. It's like, oh, look, this is a classic thing that um you know people will do is try to get attention uh, but also the serial killers just kind of like in the hallways sniffing around i just like it because if you are an attentive viewer like so often in these films there's almost nothing that can help to cue you to who the villain is and it's funny because at this point you still think oh we don't know who the killer is and in just a couple of scenes it'll be like here's the killer well taking you into his house <laughs> i wanted to actually ask y'all that so i was thinking about this last night because i really do like that we get to meet the killers like 45 minutes in but do you think that it would have worked better if it was more of like a reveal at the end but considering he's like a nobody it doesn't really matter like unless it was like fucking will Patton who was the killer there's i don't know well i think that's a big part of the theme is that he you know he he's there and you know he's part of the wall you know the wallpaper the scenery throughout the entire movie and you didn't notice which means just like in real life you could be walking by a serial killer and wouldn't know yeah yeah and it does it in like little little bits and drabs right where we see him but we don't know that we're supposed to be looking for him and then the first time we see him like in his own actual scene we only see his glasses and we're getting a reflection Mm -hmm. so we still can't really see him so it is a nice kind of slow reveal but i think unless it was meant to be a misdirect and the killer was actually someone that we don't know which would have been very popular at this time like to do a oh it's actually someone on the police force oh maybe it's whoever's leaking stories to the media do you think will Patton was meant to be a red herring because at first i thought i was like mm, i don't know if it's again the casting where i was like yeah you're kind of like not usually a good guy <laughs> but don't we get like yeah. two scenes of him before we're introduced to peter officially so it's like there's not even enough time to have him be a red herring. I think the idea was um, more just like let's introduce him slowly and have him, as you said, Kay, like pick wallpaper in the background. But I don't know. Like I'd be interested to know if they ever played with the idea that there was either a second killer or they were working in cahoots or something. We're still a year shy of Scream by this point, so <laughs> probably not. Thank God. We don't need to give Scream credit for everything. <laughs> <laughs> they, they invented two killers. This was just before you know the the horror scene changed completely mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah back when we were still getting adult horror with adults and not teenagers 
made it sound like a sexy adult. I know, I was like, That's what? not the case. <laughs> oh, but these Late adults night fuck. cinema. <laughs> yeah. These ones are all fucking each other, so. Exactly. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, so uh, this is, at this point, this is where Holly Hunter takes the phone call, the moon bike lunar cycle prank call from Helen. <laughs> yep. Uh, just to, you know, like, dig it in a little bit. Yeah, her male colleagues don't quite trust her, but, uh, so Helen Hunter and... Ruben Helen Hunter? Helen Hunter. <laughs> I'm awesome at this. You're really good. I mean, we're trying to make sure that this episode is representative of what we normally do, and I nim... I normally fuck up the names. So. Yeah, that's true. Where the hunted become the Helen. <laughs> Wait, <sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Okay, so MJ and Ruben. I will use character names. That will help me to distinguish sure. them. So MJ and Ruben head over to Helen's house because, of course, they have traced the call back. And she has made 14 of them. So she has given them plenty of evidence to be like, who is this quack? So they show up, uh, they're greeted by Andy, he's like, cool, come on in, make yourself at home. The two women openly spar. They do not get along very well. You can tell that MJ does not trust Helen. Well, the the cops, the whole police precinct knows who she is and thinks she's like a loony. I mean, it, it makes me wonder if she's called in to help on cases before and they've just been like, God, her again. Yeah. I think so. But uh, basically, this escalates to the point where Helen has a panic attack, and Andy's like, okay, I'm going to help her with this brown paper bag, but you folks need to go. Leave the evidence if you want her to look at it, and she'll be fine. We also get a brief POV shot from the killer's perspective, and he is literally across the street looking into Helen's apartment. Which, when you have an entire wall that's a window, I guess. <laughs> Buy drapes, people. <laughs> <laughs> it, he's like in his own apartment though like across the street from her right yeah because he also has a house as we establish later that oh, he yeah. seems to live in with either his mom and or wife and or wife yeah i don't know <laughs> could be both could be one we don't know <laughs> all, all that sperm money yeah <laughs> so much sperm in this movie there's actually a lot of sperm talk in this film i'm here for it <laughs> uh, yeah I'm, uh, okay you would be <laughs> Okay, so we get a visual matching scene where both Helen and MJ are looking over the photos, and that, to me, is where we start to be like, these two women are very similar, they have similar thoughts and interests, and also maybe they should kiss later. So, at the end of the night, Helen takes a shower, and when she comes out of the shower, she notices that her red dress from the opening scene has been laid out on the bed. Which hints that someone has been in the house to us, but to her, she's like, mm, I'm hopped up on pills and booze, so who could say? <laughs> I do like that she cops to that later, too. She does, but she's also like on pills and drunk for about 90% of her screen time. Correct. She's a woman after my own heart. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, she's got a great setup, she's got a great apartment, and she's also drinking a lot. So Helen is basically me, is what I'm saying. She's living the good life, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. At one point they ask her, like, are you are you on meds? And she kind of changes the subject. As she's like swirling yeah. her brandy snifter, like, yeah, why are you meds? <laughs> yeah. I'm just drunk. 
I mean, this, I sent Trace this, Kay, I didn't send it to you, I apologize, but there is actually, like, a, a profile, like, an online profile of Helen online done from, like, a, it, does she accurately represent agoraphobia? Does she have the right symptoms? And how would you then treat her? And the diagnosis was like, yeah, she's actually doing a pretty good job of portraying somebody with this disease. But also at the bottom of it, it's kind of like, how would you treat her? And it's like, uh, it'd be really difficult because she's a doctor. So she'd know what you're doing. And also she's heavily self-medicating. Yeah. Well, yes. So Yes, sorry. I had something to say about the end of the film, the original ending that was planned, but we'll just, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> I do not know of this original ending. Yeah. yeah okay, fine. okay. <clears throat> okay. So uh, we get a cutesy scene where Nicoletti and Ruben fight over MJ, and it's like this big dick contest. It's, well, she's waiting for Ruben to come back with food, and Nicoletti's like, hey, do you want to go down and get some dinner afterwards, and I'll treat you right? And she's like, yeah, I'm good. And then when Ruben comes in, they like, bah, 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 bah. <laughs> oh yeah, he's like, yeah, treat her well, don't cheat on her. And he's like, oh, like you cheated on her, and I was like, whoa, okay, you yeah. all work together. What's going on here? It's very incestuous. Um, she's really working her way through that police precinct. But okay, but here's the thing: she's actually not dating Ruben. A, yeah, yeah. so no <laughs> slut shaming there. But also, B, I just love that these two men are, like, all up in each other's business about, like, treating the woman right. Like, she's not fucking sitting right there. And also, she's working the case. And these two men are like, I want to get my dick wet. And you're just like, you two are losers. She's trying to solve the case. Yeah. I like it. Because it's the kind of thing where normally you would have a woman on screen and she would be like, mm, I need a man. It's really pathetic. <laughs> Help me, I need a man. Oh yeah, there's that one point where he's like, I'd like to propose to her, and Sigourney's like, oh, that's awfully presumptuous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Women just don't have time for men in this movie, and I kind of love it. But that's why it's so good. They but I have... think that's also why queers relate to it, is because we're just like, these people are no-nonsense, they don't have time for this bullshit, and you've got these straight people over here, like, trying to fight it out for her honor and her hand in marriage. Like, it's bullshit. Well, also, any notable male character in the film, other than the lieutenant, is murdered. Or, like, cast aside. Because Nicoletti doesn't die, but he's Oh, like, yeah, but he's out. He, he's out of the movie yeah. at a certain point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Men are just done away with in this movie. Mm-hmm okay so they go to helen she gives them the mo and she immediately is like yeah so you're dealing with the boston strangler and they're all like what <laughs> it's a bit a bit okay so i think i'm like that's kind of surprising they wouldn't notice that but again it's like it's 1995 so they have to go like read books yeah and it's been 20 <laughs> years right so it's not like oh this guy was just killing last week it's like oh that's two decades ago so i guess i would have been 15 mm -hmm. when this person is doing these murders in another city as well. Yeah. Well, and how many like stranglings must have they come across? <laughs> Apparently enough that they're just like, oh yeah, okay, and a, a, another lady with stockings in her bathtub. <laughs> like, how often are you seeing this in San Francisco? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so we are now at a pinnacle moment in this movie. This is where Helen receives a video file <laughs> in her inbox. <laughs> it is thirty seconds. It is too large to download. Because it is 30 seconds, that file is huge. <laughs> and also it has a virus. What? It self-destructs? What? I find this video legitimately... This is like, I don't find this movie scary, but I actually find this video legitimately creepy. It's really 
really disturbing to me. And it's yeah, you know, it's like the girl like, and the, the, it's like the female Wilhelm scream where it's like, Bouzha! 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 <laughs> it's really creepy. <laughs> It's well, like, what the fuck am I doing? Here? Insert that. Insert that. <laughs> <laughs> no, the the video is definitely creepy. Um, I, it's it's just fun to go back and look at outdated technology because it's you're just like, oh, I can't relate. A, a thirty second video file that is too big to download. What? Okay, sure, that's confusing in nineteen ninety five. People are literally doing magic on their computers in this movie from 1995. Like the way that they're oh, cropping yeah. out photos and like putting and them graphics. in and animating them. Mm-hmm. It's like, I can't do that in 2020. Yeah. It's like, did the Riddler send this? Like, it's very. <laughs> yes. Oh, this would have been the same year as Batman Forever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How funny would it have been if there was just like a scene where Peter Foley's watching like <laughs> Batman Returns on the background, it's just like, like Batman oh, yeah. Forever. Good idea, Batman Forever. Yeah, I love that. So yes, they figure out. Okay, now they know that Helen is involved in the case, and she's very pissed off. She doesn't want to be known by outside people because she's already having a bad time of it. So she declares she's the muse of serial killers, and she has a little conniption fit. At which point, Ruben is like, "Okay, fine, crazy lady, I will stay with you." And she's like, <laughs> "Okay." I do like that she's basically like a slightly predatory older lady at this point. She's like. Yeah, I'll, I'll allow this hot young guy to stick around. <laughs> yeah. Okay, was there supposed to be more romance between them? I don't I don't remember if there was. I think they originally had more of an interplay, like a more romantic tete-a-tete going on, but then they were like, nah, remove yeah, it. Yeah, they, they imply a lot in a very small, short, condensed period of time, because there's like, yes. sort of like, will they or won't they? And, the only, and then the next day... She says to MJ, like, oh, tell him I said hi and thank you for last night. And mm-hmm. it was like, oh, whoa, where's this going? And that's it. I expect her to, like, come in with her long satin robe, her red satin robe, obviously, and just, like, swoop the staircase. Like, huh, how did this get here? <laughs> I mean, if she could transform that dress into a robe, yeah, for sure. She's already got the red, right? I am Zool. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's the other thing. Maybe you're used to her being more sexy like too because this is not a particularly sexy role for sigourney weaver and usually she is kind of like serving it off a little bit not in like a sort of a a a typical way but i think that her bossiness is really sexy like i love her power even though she's vulnerable i still like the points where she's idiots or like she's like very clearly knows what she's talking about and she doesn't take much shit which i'm like Oof. but yeah and but that's why her and mj play so well off of each other I and mean, they're both the head bitches in charge it's true it's a film of head bitches yeah but mj is a little more she's got a little more soft skills like she she still can like mm-hmm. work a crowd and you know she's still like charming but sigourney's like i'm just gonna tell you you're gonna know exactly what i think by looking at my face which, again, I deeply respect. It. I mean, I think part of it is you're supposed to read, oh, she doesn't have a ton of people skills because she's also not interacting with anybody. Think of the way she deals with that poor agoraphobe on the computer, right? You wouldn't say that to someone's face. We're all housebound for the most part right now, so I think we can all relate without having the camera effects when we step outside. Even if we're only stepping out to reach for the newspaper. What's a newspaper? <laughs> Look, I'm I'm doing it as well as she does. 
Okay, so we've got another body. It's this flower girl from the video, the creepy video, and she has been deposited at the top of the hill, which means, of course, that we are now dealing with the hillside strangler. This is my favorite line of the movie, actually, is when they bring it back to Sigourney Weaver, and they're like, oh, um, like they don't switch like that. And then she goes, consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, she's a bit of a bitch. It's kind of well, And great. she's also kind of horny for this too because she's, she's like horny. very clever. When when oh. they when they like he kind of yes. like integrates two different killers in one uh one murder, she's like very clever. I'm like, really? I don't <laughs> <laughs> You want to give him props for that? But I think that's important, right? Because like if you think of the path that we go in this type of subgenre, we end up with things like the TV version of Hannibal where we keep getting these police procedurals where the person can literally put themselves into the perspective of the killer right and that's really what sigourney is supposed to be able to do in this movie she's like oh i understand exactly what their mo is because i can i studied them i know everything that they'll do so it makes sense but it's also kind of like oh you're like they're jonesing on the power as you talk about later and then you're jonesing on your ability to like figure them out yes Gets right. her a little wet. Correct. Maybe. Which she clearly knows what she's talking about because she's pretty much never wrong. I mean, she's published a book. She literally wrote the book on this. Yeah. The only time she makes a false step is when she sends the message to him and then it's like, he showed up at your door. <laughs> like, you maybe shouldn't have invited him in. And she second guesses herself with the dress. She she just, she actually kind of like counters like, oh, I uh, I just assumed it was me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem with the pills and the booze. Sure. So after this crime scene, so we get more tension between Ruben and Nico. And then MJ's like, I don't have time for this shit. So she just goes over to Helen's house. And I think to me, this is where you start to see more of the kind of lesbian overtones coming in. Yeah. Because they really start to get their banter flowing. They're talking about, you know, being on duty, police scanners, turning the computer on and off. And you're like... You're talking about the most mundane, stupid things, and yet it's like... Are you trying to insinuate that that's what lesbians like to talk about together? <laughs> it's it's more just like the way that they're reacting to one another. Like, the body language and the banter suggests that they're talking about something far more sexual, whereas their just, the actual dialogue just, is like, you're talking about a police scanner right now. <laughs> I think this is the first time a police scanner has been used to queer code. <laughs> Ladies, do you police scan? Mm -hmm. Well, and then later on in Joyride. I am. Yes! Oh my god. Right. Well, I guess that's not a that's not a police scanner, but... It's a CB uh, radio, but yeah, I'll take we'll it. We'll allow it. Lily Sobieski yeah, yeah. is not interested in either one of those boys. They're interested in <laughs> well, each other. Aren't they brothers? Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, they are? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. It's okay. There's two the, are disgusting. There's porn for that. There, there really is. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we get another murder. This time it's the son of Sam. And most importantly, there's a note left at the scene that cues MJ and Ruben that Helen is in trouble. And meanwhile, over at Helen's, the car alarm is going off and Peter has lured her, uh, her police presence away from the door to check out this car alarm that's going off. He sneaks into her apartment. She freaks out and she cannot get more than five feet out of the door. <laughs> 
She tries so hard. Which she bangs her head on a wall. I will say, I mean, again, without knowing yeah. too much about agoraphobia, I'm not a scientist. Wait, you're not a scientist? <laughs> We've been doing this for two years, and you have told me you were a scientist. It's at least I feel like a stupider screenplay would have been like, but she overcomes the agoraphobia and gets outside. And at least this movie doesn't take that route. I I appreciate that. Yeah, like it's so bad that she would rather go back inside into her her deadly murder mansion now than try to like face down the 10 feet of hallway she has left right exactly and she's able to use her giant wall blinds as like morse code for no i one. do enjoy that scene where she's like she's <laughs> she's working the blind yeah <laughs> she's like oh anyone would be like whoa what is going on up there it's... yeah exactly her neighbors are like that's the one on the pills <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, so he ends up getting away, and I do love that Ruben sees him running, and maybe could have given chase, but instead he just opts to go back to Helen's, and he's like, yeah, sorry, we fucked up. Yeah. Like, he could have shot oh, him too, but, you know. Yeah, no, whatever. no, okay. So, <laughs> this is when M- MJ drops everything, she hauls ass over there, and... Anything for Helen. Anything for Helen. So, this is the part where she... Helen's basically like, just level with me. Stop treating me like I'm a fucking child. And MJ's just like, yeah. So he knows where you live. He's broken into your house multiple times. Uh, he's killed a bunch of people. You're fucked. And you won't leave, so. <laughs> Whoops. They can't just like put her in like a box and like ship her to a hotel room. And like, then she's inside a hotel room. Is that, is that how it has to be like her space. It has to be her space. Oh, yeah, okay. because... I mean, really, they could just wait until the end of the night when she's passed out from the brandy and the booze and just, like, put her into a little crate and cart her over. But I think if she woke up in an unfamiliar space, it wouldn't be good. It would still trigger the agoraphobia. That makes sense. Okay. Now, Trace, I know you don't do costumes. Kay, did you happen to notice in this particular scene when Helen goes through her closet and she's like, the red dress was laid out on the bed and I thought it was just the pills and the booze. Did you happen to notice that MJ is actually wearing an identically shaded red jumper and or outfit? No. Thank you. Thank you. I get so much shit from him for not recognizing costumes. (laughs) No, I mean, you haven't talked about the score yet, and I hope you will at some point, because I was like, oh, I didn't really notice it until you, like, sent me a bunch of sound I was saving it for the finale. Anyway, okay, but I I do think it's really important just for this scene. I'm only going to talk about costumes in this one scene, but I think it's a transference of power where you're like, oh, these two women are literally, they're now like coming together in the way that they even like dress each other. But I think it's a, hmm. a visual cue that Helen should now recognize MJ as somebody who's just like her that she can trust. Because from this point on, they're very close. Yeah. Like, MJ basically kicks the men to the curb, and it's like the her and Helen show from this moment on. Well, I mean, yeah, the, the only thing standing between them at this point is Ruben. Luckily, that's not the case for much longer. Not for much longer. No. Well, I like, I also like in this scene, too, like, so, so Sigourney just figured that, or Helen figured out, uh, figured that she just kind of spaced and it moved her clothes or whatever. But MJ validates her her by saying yep. like, no this yes. is what i believe i believe that he was here and you know she's like i don't know much more than that but i believe you and we're gonna figure this out yeah yes oh my god that, you're right that is the moment that that's the profession of true love it's just a really nice moment too right like it's almost a shame that ruben is even there 
in a way because you're just like i forgot that he was i think i think because he disappears for a bit from the movie until his death scene like then he comes back because he's in it a lot in the first half and then like from like the hour mark to his death he's just gone and sigourney receives that too Mm -hmm. Uh, helen receives that that when helen says that she's like thank you for being truthful oh yeah i appreciate your candor that's right oh yeah yeah so tellingly, in the very next scene, Lieutenant Quinn, MJ's boss, is like, ooh, we think she's the leak, so we can't trust her after lunch. Oh, which is just such a read. Like, oh, she's too drunk after lunch and on, so we can't trust her. Oh. I was like, that is mean. I didn't get that, buddy. <laughs> um, but he's like, yeah, don't involve Helen anymore. She's out. We don't trust her. We've got this huge task force, and we've got police music provided by the police, so we don't need her anymore. Oh, I love it. <laughs> to me, that's actually the most silence of the Lambsy that this movie gets is that scene where she's at the front of the room, and all of the men are just like crowded around the table and kind of dwarfing her in size. And you think it's a cinema moment? You're like, what? It feels kind of jarring at first because you're like, why is there this like music montage all of a sudden? Or not montage, but it's sort of like it's just like now yeah. there's a music cue, but then they mm -hmm. like press stop, and then they're like, all right, what does this song mean? <laughs> well, no, it's because yeah, it's because you think it's supposed to be like like non-diegetic music where it's like just the soundtrack to the movie playing, and then it's like, oh no, they're actually just playing this for all these cops. So yeah, it's it it it, it does feel out of place though. You're right because nothing else in the film does this i mean minus the opera i guess that like well, every time she tries to go to the hallway <laughs> true yeah. yeah no it's it's a weird moment it's almost like a cue to tell you hey the movie is shifting gears and we're now gonna like it's it's almost helen and mj against the world and mm. the the targeted attacks against helen start to escalate at this point right yeah because okay so MJ just immediately disregards that. She goes to Helen's house. She's like, hey, so we've got this note. Let's break it down. This is where we get the MO on Peter. So it's intercut with them talking about how he's probably a normal guy. He's well-educated. He's got a decent job. And we see him working in his lab with all of the semen. Yep. And he's got uh, glasses. He's so got he's, glasses. So he's nerdy. <laughs> That's how you know he works in a lab. He's got glasses. <laughs> Um, oh, also, 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 apparently in this scene, there were originally flashbacks to his childhood to where, like, you see, like, his... Actually, so this is what would have confirmed that the woman he's living with is actually his wife, not his mother. Because there were flashbacks to his childhood to where a woman was, like, his mother was dragging him off the bed. And he went and, like, hid in a closet and lit it on fire. Apparently in the rest know. of the film, you can see slight burn marks on McNamara's forehead. I looked, and I could not see them. But Amiel insists that there is burn marks on his forehead we put him into hair and makeup for two hours every day to give him those scars and you're yeah. like well we can't see them sorry but again that's something that's like you know do you need the tragic backstory of why this guy's a copycat killer no absolutely not the whole point of this guy is that he is so bland like i think it's funny because william mcnamara in this film he's a total cutie patootie um, like no he's fine until the end when he's like removes the glasses and then it's like he's like a sexy killer and also because he like combs the hair back <laughs> he parts it oh <laughs> uh, i mean his hair is like 1995 baby mm. i had that hair back in 95 it was oh. not good on me he wears it much better than me we'll this put it that way is, this is where we insert a photo of that oh okay well yeah we'll see what we can do <laughs> he's got some hair acting going on yeah a little hairography <laughs> 
So this is where we get Helen and her aunts. This is, for me, like maybe a bit of a weird misstep in the film. I don't know that we really need this, but I suppose we got to bring Robert Downey Jr. back somehow. Joe, uh, yeah, Harry Connick Jr. Connick Jr. That. <laughs> oh, you said that earlier, and I was confused. Oh, <laughs> Who would have been better? Who would have been better, Robert Downey Jr. or Harry Connick Jr.? No, I, I love again, like even and we kind of glossed over it in the first scene, but the moment that he licks that knife when he's like, "Let's have some fun," it's really good. But shouldn't it have Evil Deaded his tongue? Is he not licking that was, the no, sharp he, side? He licked the back of it. Uh, okay, and that was all him too. That was another improvisation. Really, he really wanted to be a creep. <laughs> They said that that in between t- takes he'd be singing Frank Sinatra, which is interesting. <laughs> I mean, I prefer that to the people who go so method that you can't talk to them on set because they're just constantly in character. Right. They're like, okay, Russell Crowe, take it down a notch. <laughs> but we, I mean, again, like this is the I mean, well, I was gonna say the last time we get to see him in the film, but I forgot the the, the coda at the end. But um, we do get this webcam software, and that is one that. Amiel was like, yeah, we were going to do this as a phone call, but then I discovered that video conference technology existed. I love it because, if I'm not mistaken, Demolition Man is also 1995, and they've got, like, this whole thing where they're having, like, a virtual meeting with chairs that rotate Mm. as people walk around the room, and it's like, the chairs have a little computer screen (laughs) with, like, the people's faces in it, so that... It's like, this is this person from Tokyo. This is this person from New York. And it's like, the chairs rotate. (laughs) I just, I love the idea of primitive video chat where I was like, one day in the future, we'll be able to talk, but see each other. (laughs) Yes. Yes, we will. But yeah, he's creepy in this scene and they figure out uh, where Peter's going to be. Well, and I think importantly, this is the start of our sequel setup that never happens because he mentions that he has multiple disciples that are visiting yeah. him, of whom Peter is one. And we also get panties. He wants her panties. Panties. Your squirrel covers. Your panties. I hate that word panties. It's so gross. It's so nasty. We should just use squirrel <sighs> covers. Yeah, squirrel covers or undergarments. One of the two. It's an either or. <laughs> okay, so they get a lead, and they're going to go and catch this. I love that it ha- it's supposed to happen in like the meatpacking district or something, but it never happens because poor Ruben has to get shot in a police precinct, <laughs> and he's dead. Now, Kate, did you see this coming? Did you think he was going to die? Not at all. Okay, good. <laughs> I I forgot. Yeah, no, I kind of forgot about him because, and he's also just like, where do you go to pick up donuts or something? He's just like, oh, here. Do, do, do. <laughs> Actually, no, that, that is what he was doing. He was just getting, that's all he does in this movie is get food. I like it. <laughs> I, this is what I want a man to do for me. Bring okay. me donuts. But now Bring how do they get their food? Oh. Mm. No I one, mean, no one. Nobody <laughs> eats for the rest of this film. Yeah. They had so, video conferencing, but Grubhub was not a thing yet. Not a thing yet. No. 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 Can you imagine what the like the nineteen ninety five like the the internet screen for Grubhub would look like? Just all those green words. I think it would um, probably just be a picture of a sub on like a green background, and it would be like the sub would flash if you wanted to order it or something. <laughs> okay, so yeah, we go through all this drama with the police. Blah 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 blah. I I want to jump to Andy's death because I think. Well, there's a conversation to have here. But also, B, 
this could have been Ruben's death. Like you could have had Ruben be the Dahmer kill and they don't do that. And I think, I don't know why, because Joe, what did you find about this little tidbit? So when I was doing some digging for this, I tried to do, you know, keyword searches like lesbian, copycat film, 1995, gay, copycat, 1995. And one of the articles that I found was a listicle from, I think, New Now Next or some kind of like gay site. And this film was listed on a listicle that said it was the worst representation for gays in film. And this was one of the films that they selected. And I was like, this doesn't make sense. So I click on it. And in the description, it was copycat introduces this queer character, Andy, gives him a couple of scenes. But then as soon as they introduced Dahmer, I knew that that's what they were going to do. They only made this character gay and they only included him in the film so that he could be murdered. Therefore, it's like a terrible depiction of gayness. I don't subscribe to this theory because A, Dahmer didn't exclusively kill gay men. He also mostly killed people of color. But I, I don't buy into the fact that Andy is gay just so he can be killed that 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 that, that's the connection that i'm having trouble making here i mean i can certainly understand why someone might do a cursory viewing of this film and then think that because you're like here's a character who's explicitly queer you know very publicly talking about it talking about going out to the clubs he's got this gay friend that he leaves with and it seems like we only get a little bit of him and then he gets murdered. So I could see somebody saying, oh, well, he's not really a fully fleshed out character in this film. He just is a gay man. And then he gets murdered and he gets murdered because he's gay, right? Like he's pinpointed at a gay bar and they go after him because of the Dahmer connection, whether you want to talk semantics of it. That's why I kind of bring in the Ruben stuff though. Cause it's like, I mean, he could have easily have just done the same thing to Ruben maybe because he was a cop. They were like, oh, that's not really going to work. But I don't, I don't, I personally don't view any of this as homophobic. No, I don't either. I mean, I probably believe that the character was written to, for that scene, for that die, to have a Dahmer kill. I think they probably needed a gay character in there. But I mean, I think that they've done enough with the character for him to not be in t- like exclusively a pro- like a plot prop. Yeah, it's an interesting piece because I think they could have picked another serial killer instead of Dahmer and still gone after Andy and been like, because at this point, Andy is the final kill of the film before we get to the big climax. So the whole reason that Andy is killed, it's not really because he's gay. It's actually because Peter is trying to go after the person who's closest to Helen to make her hurt. Right. I I think maybe the, the, I think maybe it's because Dahmer was gay or at least in some way that that's where this person's getting this from yeah um but, but did Dahmer make a kill like that i thought it was kind of like an a, a weird kill because you know in the alleyway was that really his mo i think it was just the way that they find the body which is floating in the river headless yeah, he, he, he would typically lure men or boys back to his place. It was actually weird. Like he, he killed his first person when he was 18 and then didn't kill again until like seven or eight years later. But then like from like 87 to 91 when he was caught, it was like, you know, 17 murders. 
But yeah, he would typically lure people back and kill them there. He would just member them, have sex with the corpses, but uh, d- cutting the heads off was definitely something that he did. So I think that's, but that's the other thing too. It, 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 compared to the other copycat kills, which were so detailed, this one does seem a bit light on the actual copycatting, you know? Yeah, it almost seems like it's less important that it's a copycat and more that it's going to hurt Helen. Yes. Because I think this is also the most emotional kill in the film. Like, this is the only character that we actually get to know in any great detail. Like, we don't know any of the women that Peter kills. And we also don't actually get to see any of them get killed, whereas we get a whole alleyway scene attack where we get this character that we know and like and don't want anything bad to happen to him. We get to see him, you know, smashed against a, what, a dumpster and an alley a fence and stuff or. Yeah. But well, and that, that, that could add to your, to it too. I could see someone's viewing this and saying, well, okay, we, there's no violence against women because we don't see any of these women get killed, but the one gay character we do. Now granted we do see Ruben get killed, but it's far less brutal than Andy's death. But mm-hmm. we also don't see Andy get decapitated, you know? We just just see him get strangled. So I can see the argument where you're saying, okay, well, we don't see anyone else like suffer, but we see the one gay character in your film suffer. Yeah. I just think it's interesting, like I'm reflecting back on the beginning of our conversation where Kay, you said in 1995, we didn't get this kind of representation. Like this movie is on the cutting edge because it even bothered to introduce a, a queer character with a name. So I think we're praising the film for doing the very same thing that this other individual is saying like, well, you know, you just gave us this queer character so that you could kill them. And I'm like, yeah, this is what the mid nineties was for queer representation. But there's no malicious intent here, I don't think. Like, I don't think this, these people were like, let's kill the gay guy. <laughs> but I get that impact and intention are very different, you know, but like me personally, I'm not negatively impacted by the, the implications of this kill. But if you are, by all means, like totally, you do you. I think the worst case scenario here is that writing the script, they had like a, a list of, you know, all the serial killers and they were like, which ones should we use? And, and you know, the Dahmer thing, they're probably like, oh, well, maybe we can tie that in to the plot but i don't i don't think it was anything more than that i think if anything they're just trying to um yeah Dahmer, well i guess everyone's pretty big name i'm trying to think of like yeah. who they may have i think they out. name a couple of other people that like they mentioned gacy but then i think that would still be a gay kill that that would yeah <laughs> well that would that would be more of a pedophilic thing too i think but we, we... i think that's a little more cartoony if they had done that i think it would have like distracted i think the other killers there's still enough where it's like they're pretty straightforward kills, even if they were like printed elaborately, their right. bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I actually do wonder if they did a Gacy kill, if like he would have actually gone in full clown garb. Um, we also don't get the Ted Bundy kill. Like that that's the one that's listed. But again, if it was Ted Bundy, it would have been killing a woman. Yeah. So. Yeah, he would have lured her into his, what, gold VW, VW bug. bug. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. With a cast on his arm. I'm actually surprised. I kind of thought that he was going to show up at Helen's with his arm in a cast just to like prove that he could fool her. No, let's talk about this because I was always really confused and I need need to know if y'all agree. Whenever he opens the door and he slits the cop's throat, she looks out the peephole and it looks like the two cops, meaning the cop and Peter, are just standing there like having a laugh. Mm -hmm. And then she opens the door and all of a sudden like the knife's at the guy's neck. I was, I've always, like this is the one, one part of the film that I'm like, I don't understand it. Like, did, did the cop know him? Did he just walk up to be like, hey, I, I'm relieving you of your duty now? I, I don't know. I, I just never got that. I always interpreted it as um, don't make a scene. 
or else I'll kill you. Just get her to open the door. So look like everything's fine. Okay, did you do the same thing? I, pretty, I, I, just, <laughs> I saw, I thought they were pretty chummy. Like it seemed like genuine, but I, I yeah, I guess it would have to be the relieving of the scene, uh, relieving of like the duty or whatever, because why would they be, other than the like, you know, the blue code, the brotherly thing or whatever, I'm just like, why are they- The blue code. There? Why are they there to, together to begin with? Maybe that's why he has the house across the street because he's there so that he can pose as the police officer who like rotates through. Cause it I would be really hard to it. go. I think we're overthinking it, but. <laughs> You know, it is uh, confusing, and and also kind of a throwaway kill. I mean, in a way of like, is that wasn't really yeah. You know, it's also like the, the boxes, like one of the only moments of like genuine like gore that we get in the film with that blood spray. I like it. Um, oh, I do too. It's great. Okay, take us home. Sorry, in between these scenes that we were talking about, Peter has also destroyed his home and killed his wife, mother. Oh yeah, and there's a whole. Oh, that's also very Silence of the Lambs though, where the cops go and it's not the wrong house this time, but it's like you know, he's not there. Yeah, I, I definitely thought that they were setting it up that he had rigged everything and he was going to just blow everybody up, kind of like in speed. But in this case, he's like, no, he just left a couple of cans of gas lying around so that there's a fire. Right. But like, it doesn't seem like anybody really dies, which is kind of funny. He's yeah. Like, no, it's just a distraction. <laughs> well, she, yeah, because she's already dead, so. Okay, so time for the final copycat. So at this point, Peter has broken in. He has punched Sigourney Weaver in the face a couple of times. And then MJ finds a video inviting her to come to the scene of the crime where it all began if she's a smart cop. So <laughs> we wake up with Helen. She is back in the bathroom at the university. And she wakes up as the... I guess the noose goes around her neck in the bathroom stall. And Peter is just so pathetic at this point. Like he thinks he's so cool recreating the scene of Daryl Lee and she could not give two shits about him. I think, no, this is her like, all right, I'm going to die. Fuck it. Like (laughs) I'm going to get this fucker and just make him feel shitty before he kills me. Yeah. I mean, I think at this point, like, hypothetically she would also be facing down her agoraphobia because she has woken up in a new environment so i think she's very much like the only way to conquer this is to like put on my professional hat and try to just like meet this person where they're at which is i'm not taking your shit because i know everything about you um okay so he then assumes uh an early groundwork scene from saw where he pretends to be the dead cop so that when mj comes in he is there and he can surprise her i love the way that's framed though like i actually think that one thing amiel does really well is um so in the beginning when he like the cop has the gun out and like you don't like Daryl doesn't just pop out it's like you see his hand come up and grab the gun where it's like really slick and easy and then this one you have like you know MJ going around and you just see Peter as the dead cop like turn his head and like like, it's very you know Halloween-y but I love it. I like that it doesn't rely on a lot of jump scares like I think that's why people don't find that this film is particularly scary but I find that it works on an atmospheric level like it's got a really good tone to it. Yeah. This scene in particular, like the scene in sort of the, the setting of the bathroom, it was very intentionally made to evoke the psycho shower scene. Really? Um, in fact, a lot okay. of interviews, it's, it was a talking point in a lot of the interviews, both the director and Sir Gorney kind of talking about, uh, and it sounded a little bit forced, but they're like, we want to do 
for public bathrooms what Hitchcock did for the shower. If I have to, <laughs> no, no. It's a, I, I, I heard that too, and it was like, y'all. <laughs> you can't make those kinds of moments. You, you can't deliberately set out to be like, we're going to scare people off of using public toilets. <laughs> Come on. Can you imagine though? Like, <laughs> I was honestly more bothered by the fact that she was like, like, it's a very pristine bathroom, and like, she's like, you know, putting the toilet paper down in the seat. I mean, Maybe that just really speaks to my personal hygiene, but like that was a very clean bathroom. <laughs> you could eat off the floor of that bathroom. Come on. It's all white. It's so white. <laughs> Which is like not what you find in like college campuses because that bitch would be impossible to keep clean if you had students trampling through there all the time. Absolutely mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. No, and it's no, no. huge. It's massive. <laughs> So your alternate ending, by the way, is that Hel- MJ was going to be in trouble and Helen was going to conquer her agoraphobia and kill Peter. And apparently they did film this and they did test screen it and audiences didn't find it believable that Helen would be able to conquer her agoraphobia. And so they were like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, what's our plan B then? <laughs> Reshoots. Which, which I agree with. Like, I think she does a reasonable job of fighting back. Like, Again, it's difficult not to see Sigourney Weaver in a role where she's just like literally like punching this guy's face through the back of his skull. But I think she actually does get a couple of nice empowering moments. Like she sees that MJ's in trouble, so she sacrifices herself, which is like, yeah, it's such a like female thing for their male counterparts. So I love that it's like the older female mentor is actually doing it for her younger colleague here. Like it feels like a really nice gendered inversion that yeah. I'm also here for. And then she stabs him in the fucking leg. She sprays him in the eye with cleaner, which I love it, is cleaner as well because that's what he used to kill that other girl. And okay, I, this is like my geeky like I'm a '90s slasher kid moment. But like, so Christopher Young did the score for this. Christopher Young is like a bunch of scores but this is like the one that i remember the most because the music in this scene it's like this dun, 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 dun. it's used in the trailers for both scream and i know you did last summer and so when i saw this movie it was after i'd seen those trailers and i was like this sounds so familiar that's why <laughs> i love it and it's really good and we got like you know sigourney running out like da, na, 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 na. that's my <laughs> rendition of this score <laughs> is that what he was doing okay i didn't get that did you get that it's okay. We'll just put a YouTube clip <laughs> over it. <sighs> no, I mean, this is all really good. I feel like at this point, I had forgotten that this part of the movie existed. I thought everything ended in the bathroom. So when she's like running down the hall and going up the stairwell, the roof, where are we yeah. going with this? Did y'all did the, put up your dukes? <laughs> like she's just delirious at this point. I mean, it, it's safe to assume that he maybe also drugged her to keep her out. So mm-hmm. I don't know whether she's he did. operating. He, he, he injected her before he took her to the room. Right. Yes. This is going to hurt. Okay, oh, yeah. Peter. He says it a lot. <laughs> He's just so pathetic. He's so wimpy. You're just like, you're not scary. Even the part where he's like, oh, like he's clearly getting camera ready before MJ comes in. Like that's why he takes off the glasses and combs his hair because he wants <laughs> to be immortalized. You're like, you're sad. Yeah. Actually, if you think about it, this is kind of Scream 4. Sort of he the wants wannabe, to be famous. He wants like, fame. Yes. Or just um, by copying someone else's MO. Yeah, it treats it kind of like a virus where it's like, oh, one killer breeds other killers who want Im- to imitate their fame and blah, 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 which, again, I think is a really nice take on it. 
Yeah. And it's also the way that line is said earlier in the film is, a, is sort of an indictment on men too, because she says, these men are like viruses. There's always a new mutation. The movie's yeah. sexist, guys. It hates men. <laughs> Where are all the female serial killers in this movie? Come on. <laughs> Maybe that would have been the sequel. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, let, so let, let, let's do this. So yeah, MJ blows out what's-his-face's brains because she, lear- she learns that cops need to kill people. Yeah, um, don't just shoot him in the shoulder. Pump him full of lead. <laughs> Although I do love the brain splatter that once we like we get we get the headshot on him, it's really good. Do we like the coda? Because we're done now. We're we're done with MJ and we're done with Helen. Like they they they're out of the movie. She I, I'm assuming is brought back home to be cared for by MJ. <laughs> yes, they live happily ever after in her palatial San Francisco apartment with her mm-hmm. giant computer setup. Yeah. Um, and then we cut back to the prison where Daryl Lee is writing a letter to a new disciple and he's saying, more, yeah, this other guy fucked it up. So come and do it. I love he has like a giant like blow up of Peter's driver's license too, like right behind it. Yeah. <laughs> Just in case you forgot who I'm talking about, this guy. <laughs> it was a fax. He got a fax over. Yes! <laughs> Um, He's already used his one video call for the year, so they had to fax the picture <laughs> over. So I really do like this ending. I think it's really creepy. Um, I don't know what a sequel would look like without being the same thing. I guess it because well, I guess you just maybe wouldn't call it copycat. Like maybe it wouldn't be a copycat killer. I just kind of hate that well, we end with so many other. Sorry, no, yeah, go, 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 so go. many other killers. That, you know, they could have just kept going through all the other. Right, um, which is very true. I'm just trying to think of like how that would be different than this one, you know? Like, it's like the whole thing of like with the sequel. Oh, well, it's just a rehash of the first movie. I guess in this one, you would have maybe her and uh, Helen and MJ be more of a team from the get-go, since all that, like, animosity is out of the way. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I would 100% watch a legacy sequel if it came out next year. <laughs> Can you imagine? Or series. This would be a great series. It's oh. Actually... I- it's been a long time since I've seen it. I only watched a few episodes, but I remember when Kevin Bacon did that show called The Following. It's actually a very yes. similar. That's from Kevin yeah. Williamson. Yep, Kevin Williamson mm-hmm. created that. Um, yeah, um, make it better. And yeah, for sure, absolutely. <laughs> I actually think that this, to me, the spiritual sequel of this is The Bone Collector, the Lincoln Rhymes one. Uh, where yeah. He's the, is it quadriplegic or just paraplegic? Paraplegic. But uh, they tried to turn that one into uh, into a television series with the, one of the guys from that terrible NBC show where he could see demons. Wow, I'm sorry. Okay. No, I know, but it got canceled after one season. I remember when I found that out. Yeah, I, I guess you could do it. Like, I would rather see it done Hannibal Lee. I guess you would need right. it to be gory. But like, I mean, can you imagine a show where like, a procedure like every other week was like a a new famous serial killer copycat murder like i mean probably actually it would be gory they would make it way gory in this video is yeah by two women but it could mm-hmm. be interesting right because you could you could still play with that idea that they're the killer is actually zeroing in on sigourney like you could still have that through line of her being sort of like stalked or like gently being threatened throughout the course of the season and then built up to something similar to what we get in this film. That yeah. would 100% work. Yeah. But as it stands, I like the same, way the She's ends. got the same luck. She's got the same luck as uh, Sydney Prescott. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe the next movie is just her in therapy, though, cover, cover, trying to overcome that agoraphobia once and for all, because that's the real villain. She's like, it's okay, MJ. I just made my first appointment to meet with this nice doctor, Dr. Lecter. 
<laughs> oh my god brian fuller take copycat awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um but you know as it says, i mean i love this movie i think it's a fucking fantastic movie it's a five out of five for me i love that we get to talk about it on this but um yeah i mean i i could watch this any day of the week bring it on yeah i hadn't seen this movie probably in about a decade and i found that i vividly remember whole scenes whole sections of dialogue I just find Holly Hunter and Sigourney Weaver are such amazing actresses and this role, putting them together and letting them play off of each other, like, and presenting them as kind of no nonsense women that don't need men in their lives and literally get rid of the men in their lives so that the film can progress. It's just like, it, yeah, it's, it's everything that I want if I'm going to watch a kind of straightforward crime procedural. I love, well, I've seen it twice now and I, I, it, is, it is really great. It is, um, and I could definitely, you know, I'm never really compelled to, to watch The Silence of the Lambs or Seven. I feel like they've made enough of an impact, but Copycat, it's the same thing. It's the performances, it's particularly Holly Hunter, I think just in everything she does. I mean, I, I adore Sigourney as well, but Holly is able to make the tiniest line, the tiniest gesture, the tiniest like flick of an eye means something. And um, I, I could just watch her literally do anything. Right, I mean like she won an Oscar for a silent role. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things where I feel like almost like cinema doesn't quite know what to do with her because she's not like the usual actress. So she's had this weird career trajectory where she just really like I know that people feel like she's gotten her dues like she's got a fucking Oscar she's appeared in a Batman movie blah 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 but how are we not seeing Holly Hunter movies coming out every couple of years and well, her getting like really good meaty roles I will have you know that Little Black Book with her and Brittany Murphy and Kathy Bates is an A plus rom-com in my opinion <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> not where i thought you were gonna go but that is a total trace move yeah it is yeah, and it drop is, some random really, rom-com it's, it's a really in the holly hunter pantheon yeah i mean it's better than batman v superman so mer. well but you don't want to hear her talk about piss for a couple of minutes let's <laughs> let's do this um <laughs> just for yeah, yeah. let's purge that it's terrible it's we'll watch bad. it next year on hbo max <laughs> yeah the Snyder Cut. It's great. Wait, no, that's Justice League. Fuck, sorry. Okay, well, yeah, so that's gonna wrap up Copycat. First of all, Kate, thank you again for inviting us into your festival and letting us, well, taint the lives of all your subscribers. Yeah. <laughs> subscribers, <laughs> attendees. <laughs> it taint Look, bad. Well, it's a little bit of both this year. And I, I, our audience, a lot of them are familiar with you guys. So it's a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad that you guys could be part of it. I mean, I'm just super glad too that we could ask you to be on this particular episode because we have been trying to pin you down for like a good six months. Yeah, so we it have. feels like this is, it, it taint a bad move to invite, no. Um, I just love <laughs> the fact that we got to appear at your festival, but also to have you on the on the episode because everybody else mm -hmm. that you program can't say that they get to do this with you. Yeah. That, that makes true. us better. And <laughs> it was a great film. I never seen it before. So I'm glad that. Um, no, we could have made you watch something shitty. <laughs> well, it, you know, shitty movies can be fun to talk about, but this is a movie that I'll definitely continue <laughs> watching. Oh, good. Okay. <sighs> well, good. And I think that'll close us out. So on that note, we can cross out copycat yes and cross out horror queers
Disgusting Podcast Network, home of creepy and disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and the Boo Crew. Horror-centric interviews. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.